Thank you, Brother Andy. Good morning, church. How is everybody this morning? I bring you greetings from Pastor Jeff Thomas this morning and his family. They're on their way back from their trip to New York, and I checked in with them this morning to make sure their travel was well. He said they were just outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. Asked him how the travel weather was, and he said, oh, it's beautiful today. I said, well, it won't be for long. The further you come this way, you might see a little rain. But I tell you, there's a lot of pressure in filling in for a, uh, a person as, as dynamic and energetic as Brother Jeff. So in preparation for this, I was kind of like, how do, I, how do I bring that level of energy? How do I get anywhere near Brother Jeff Thomas's level of energy? And I prayed about it, and I thought about it, and, and, I, and I, I said, well, I think I, I think I know how to do this. To bring the level of energy of Brother Jeff Thomas... I need a Red Bull. And then I remembered, we're talking about Brother Jeff Thomas. I need two Red Bulls. Has has anybody ever tasted this stuff? Oh, my gosh. Something's wrong with this stuff. I I can't drink it. I couldn't drink it. And those of you that uh, that are medical people are probably thinking, you know, if that 58-year-old man drank two Red Bulls, we might ought to be on standby because he's liable to drop out right here in front of us. I want to, uh, I want to do a little survey this morning. Let, let's begin with a survey, and, and this is certainly a by-show-of-hands survey. And I figure the men are probably going to be more likely to, to uh, fess up here than the ladies are. But how many of you, besides me, how many of you have ever done something in your life that was just incredibly stupid and you're amazed that you're still alive today? Wow, I got, I, there's actually some ladies who raised their hands. When, uh, when I was about, I think I was about 13 years old when this happened, um, I grew up, my early life, I grew up in Sterlington, Louisiana, and we actually lived on Bayou Bartholomew. And it was this time of the year, it was the fall of the year, and there was a place on Bartholomew Bayou that we called Hackberry Cut. So it was this two, three hundred yard, just sort of a canal that went back off of the bayou, and there were hackberries growing all up in the water. So this time of the year, the water snakes and whatever else kind of snakes there were would climb up in those hackberries to sun for the day. Now, if anybody has ever seen snakes in the fall, you realize that the snakes begin to get their eyes glazing over a little bit. They, they milk over right before the winter hibernation. So myself and three or four of my idiot friends would take something like a shovel handle and we would uh, cut the head off of the shovel, which always made our dads happy, new shovel every year. Uh, so we'd cut the head off of a shovel, and we would take a, a U-shaped staple and a big, thick guitar string, like a G-string off a, a, a guitar, and we would hammer that in and make a loop. So basically, we're making a gig. So what we would do is we'd get in our boats, and we'd go up in Hackberry Cut in the warm part of the day, and we'd find as many snakes up in those Hackberry bushes as we could find, and we would slip that over their head and gig them, and... One guy would hold a burlap sack or croaker sack, and we'd put 10 or 12 snakes in the sack and take them home and dump them out in the yard and play with them. Hmm, amazed I'm alive today. So we were doing that one day, and my father came out. He sees us out there, and we're playing with these snakes in the yard. And he said, What are you doing? We're playing with snakes. Yeah, I can see that. So I guess I have a couple of questions for you. Number one, do you realize that not all of the snakes you're playing with are non-poisonous? Because I can see at least two triangular heads. I'm pretty sure those are cotton-mouth moccasins you're playing with. Well, I guess we didn't realize that. Okay, well, here's question number two. Do you realize what would happen if one of those snakes bit you? Uh, no. Well, let me explain it to you. You might die. So, 
do you boys prefer to live, or do, do y'all want to live past the eighth, the, the eighth grade, or do you want to die? We want to live. He said, well, if you really want to live, you need to act like it. Because right now, you're not acting like it. You're playing with poisonous snakes. That's not a very wise thing to do. So if you really want to live, you need to act like it. That memory was buried in my past for many, many years until about um, a month ago, I guess it was. And you guys have heard uh, Brother Jeff talk about a pastor that he loves to listen to named Joby Martin. Does anybody in here listen to Joby, Joby Martin? Look him up, J-O-B-Y, Joby Martin. Wonderful guy. Um, man, you talk about a straight shooter. <laughs> Joby Martin doesn't pull any punches. He just tells it like it is. So about a month ago, I had to travel to San Antonio, and um, on my way down there, I was sort of just dealing with some things that, you know, in my head and in my heart, I was dealing with some things that I knew I probably wasn't really responding to things as well as I needed to, and I knew that, you know, you just get that feeling. You know what I'm talking about? You get that feeling sometimes. You you, you just need to think about how you're handling things. So... On the, I think it was a t- I traveled on a Monday, and on Tuesday morning, I had to meet with a client at 9 o'clock in San Antonio. And I got to their office at about 8.35. I predicted traffic would be heavy, and amazingly, it wasn't. So I got to their office a little earlier. And I, it's been my experience with this client that if I go in their corporate office, which is a big high-rise building, <clears throat> if I go in early, I'm just going to sit in the lobby. So I said, well, I'll occupy my time. So I get on my phone, and I did a search for Joby Martin podcast, and I found his list of many podcasts that he's done. And one of them caught my eye, and I began to listen to it. And as I said, Joby Martin doesn't pull any punches. And I'm sitting there listening to this very dynamic uh, straight shooter pastor, and he said, at one point, he said, you know, If you say that you really want to live a spirit-filled life and you really want to walk with Jesus, then you need to act like it. And immediately I was taken back to the day that my dad looked at me and said, if you want to live past the eighth grade, you need to act like it. Wow, those are some penetrating words. So, you know, sometimes something will hit you and it's, it's pretty strong in the moment, but then it fades away. But this didn't fade away. And about two days later, <clears throat> I got to thinking about, you know, I had, I had uh, responded to Brother Jeff positively when he asked if I would fill in for him today. And I thought, God, is, is, is this a message I need to share? And, boy, I hope so, because it's a good one. <laughs> so <clears throat> I want to share the act like it message with you today. Um, in that podcast, Joby Martin talked about um, how we reach certain points in our life where we have an opportunity to make a choice about how we're going to respond to something. We have an opportunity to make a choice about the action that we're going to take when something comes up. And there's a lot of different situations. And in my life, I refer to those as crossroad moments. You're at a crossroads, and at that moment, you get to decide how you're going to respond. So let's take a look at some crossroads. You know, we could probably stand up here, uh, you know, we could be together for a long time and talk about many, many different crossroads events in your life, and and I'm certainly not going to keep you that long. But I would like to share about four or five different crossroads events. The first one I'd like to share with you is when we're faced with difficult circumstances. Now, the definition of difficult circumstances is not the same for everybody. How many of you have a, a number of children and one child can face a certain event, basically just calm, clear, you know, calm as a cu- cool as a cucumber and not really get excited about it, but another child you have just goes off the deep end over the smallest little thing? Anybody? Because we're different. So the definition of a difficult circumstance varies from person to person, but here's the reality. 
For every person who faces what they see as a difficult circumstance, it's very real to them. And so their reaction to it may be different than yours, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't minimize the fact that they see it as a difficult circumstance. We should honor that. When people, you know, we see people going, man, you're, this, this guy's getting all wrapped around the axle over that, or this girl's flipping out over this or that. Well, maybe it's bigger to them than it is to you. And maybe there's an opportunity for you there, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But <clears throat> it's often been said that every person, or at any given time, that people are either about to go into a difficult circumstance or a crisis in their life, or they're in the middle of a difficult circumstance or crisis, or they're about to exit a crisis or a difficult circumstance. And I think that's probably true. You know, we could survey 100 people and find that probably over 90% of those people fall into one of those three categories. They've either just, they feel like they're about to go into something difficult, or they're in the middle of it, or they're, you know, on the upside. They're about to come out of it. So, when you think about where do difficult circumstances come from, and how do we get into and out of difficult circumstances, I want you to think for a second about the role that Satan plays in difficult circumstances. Satan loves difficult circumstances. He loves to put people in situations where they're experiencing chaos. He absolutely thrives when our lives are in chaos. It's a wonderful thing for him because chaos in our lives is something that creates weak moments for us, moments of vulnerability. And he loves those moments of vulnerability because he can take those vulnerable moments and he can bend them and twist them and present them in such a way that it affects how we respond to those difficult moments and those challenges in our life. Now, what does he want us to do? Does he want us to have an appropriate Christian response to difficulties? Absolutely not. By the way, this is audience participation. No, he doesn't want that. He wants us to go off the deep end and get all wrapped around the axle on things. So we have to remember that there's a God who's in control of everything, and we're not him. But we love him, and he loves us, right? So... With that said, let's take a look at what the Bible says about difficult circumstances, okay? Number one, let's remember that God never promised that we would have a beautiful, peaceful, always great, perfect, rosy life, did he? I mean, if it's in the Bible, please show it to me, because I don't think it's in there. In fact, just the opposite is in there. If we go to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4... Everybody knows these verses. Beginning in in verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Verse 4 says, Let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may mature and be complete, lacking nothing. I think we need to go back and look at verse 2 and 3, for particularly verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face what? A trial? No, he did not say a trial. What did he say? Trials, plural. Trials of many kinds. Okay, is that going to freak me out? Should it? No. Because God has just told me that I'm going to face trials. But because God told me that, what do I know behind that? That he's going to be there. And he's going to help me through those trials. Can I count on that? This would be a great great time for a resounding, yes, we can count on that. Yes. All right, so I'm guaranteed that I'm going to face some trials and difficulties, right? My dad used to have a saying, he said, you know, son, I would far rather face the devil I know than the devil I don't know. I would far rather go through my life knowing that the God who cares for me has already told me ahead of time, hey, Mike, you're going to face some trials, you're going to face some difficulties, instead of being blindsided by them, because my God doesn't blindside me. He tells me everything I need to know. Everything I need to know is right there. He's already told me. 
What do I have to do? Pay attention. Be watchful. So, I like verse 4 where it says, let perseverance finish its work in you. What does that mean, let perseverance finish its work in you? Well, there must be something God is doing through my, pers- through my trials, and my action to persevere through those must be important because he must be trying to do something because the Bible says, let it finish his work in me. So that perseverance that I'm supposed to have to get through those trials is a perfecting perseverance. You know, we hear all the time, how do do you refine gold? How do you get the purest, most perfect gold? What does it take? Fire. We've got to run gold through fire. Anybody ever felt like you were in a fire? Yeah. But fires don't last forever. But the perseverance that you display and the building that you get through that, God is purifying you through that. So that the next trial you face may feel just a little bit smaller than the last one. So, if I say that I truly desire to be spirit-filled and live in a spirit-filled way and walk with Jesus, when it comes to being faced with difficult circumstances, then I need to act like it. Now, this is definitely audience participation. So, when I say, act like it, let's say, act like it. If I'm faced with difficult circumstances, and I say I want to be spirit-filled, and I want to walk with Jesus, then I need to act like it. The second one I want to share with you is when we are faced with temptation. Faced with temptation. Hmm. Well, let's define temptation. So every time we go, let's define, everybody goes, oh, this person's going to read me the Webster's definition of temptation. No, I'm not going to read you the Webster's definition of temptation because the Webster's definition of temptation is an earthly definition. What I need to know is what is the spiritual definition of temptation? I need to know how God sees temptation and how he would define it. And I think that I found that. After a lot of looking and searching, this is a great definition that I found. Temptation, in a biblical sense, is a situation in which a believer experiences a test or a trial in their life that produces the opportunity to choose between pleasure and personal gain or obedience and faithfulness to God. Let's do that again. You face a trial or circumstance in your life that's difficult, and it presents the opportunity for you to make a choice between pleasure for yourself or personal gain for yourself, or you're going to choose to be faithful and allegiant to God. That's a pretty easy thing to see, isn't it? Satan's in there somewhere. He's, he's going, hey, it's okay. I know that if you make this choice that other people are going to suffer, or they won't get as much as you got, but it's okay because you deserve this. Oh, it's okay for you to get that off your chest and say what you want to to that person because you should be able to do that. You should be able to feel better. How many of you have said something in, at some point in your life, you've responded to somebody in such a way that you walked away from that and thought, ah, man, I should, probably shouldn't have said that. Probably shouldn't have. You know, words are like arrows. Once you, once you let go of that string and that arrow takes off, you ain't going to stop it. It's already out there. That don't work. You, you can't grab those words. I've tried it. I've said some things in the past to some people that I love dearly and thought, wow, <laughs> did I just say that to them? You know, oh, that was horrible. Shouldn't have said that. So, recognizing temptation from a distance is really the best way to avoid its influence over us. So how in the world do you recognize temptation from a distance? Does God give us the ability to see things coming at us? I believe he does. But why don't we see them? Because we're looking at too many other things. 
because we're too distracted with too many other things. Sometimes we do this. Don't want to see it coming. It's not close enough to enjoy yet. Let me let it get a little bit closer. I don't want to say, if I say I saw it, then I'd have to say I should have not done it. Why did God give us foresight? Why did he give us discernment? Why did he give us the ability to see things so that we could avoid them? We were at, uh, myself and several other guys from the church here, were at a men's retreat down in Baton Rouge a few weeks ago. And during the retreat, there was an opportunity for men who were first time attending a, a men's retreat to just stand up and talk about themselves or, you know, stand up and talk about how they felt about things going on in their lives at the time. And there was a guy that stood up and said something that I thought, man, got to lock on to that, got to hang on to that, because that's, that's gold right there, that's good stuff. He was talking about dealing with temptation, because temptation was something that was difficult for him. And hey, he was preaching my language, you know. Yes, temptations are very difficult to deal with, especially the sneaky ones. And this is what he said. He said, you know, to me, temptation could kind of be represented by a big old dinner plate size red wasp's nest just loaded up with wasps and maybe also some snakes coiled up on the ground. Those two things combined, to me, represent really strong temptation. He said, if I'm trying to go through a doorway to get from the place I'm in to outside, and right up at the top of that doorway is a big dinner plate sized wasp nest loaded up with red wasps, and they're swarming around the nest. And down at the threshold of the door, there's two deadly snakes coiled up at the door. He said, I'm not going to just kind of ease like walk my way through the door. Uh uh-uh. uh. I'm going to, time to go. I'm getting out that door, and I'm getting as far away from those things as I can. And I thought, man, that's the way to look at temptation. Get out of here. Don't stand there and look at it. Don't analyze it. Don't try to figure out what you can do about it. Don't try to see how you can alter it and make it not so tempting. Don't do any of that stuff. Just recognize it's a temptation. And temptations never take us to a place that's good. They always take us to a place that's bad. So, When you're faced with a temptation, you have to make a choice. But if you can avoid a temptation, you don't even have to make that choice. It's just, it's not in my life. It's not there. I'm away from it. So the value in recognizing and seeing temptations is fantastic. So let's look at some some, uh, scripture and see what the Bible says about temptation. First, let's go to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So what that's telling me is that I'm not the only sucker. (laughs) I'm not not the only guy that is tempted and sometimes stupid enough to fall for it. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond beyond your own ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Man, that's a, that's a promise we need to stand on right there, right? With temp, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. It took me a lot of years to finally realize that the way of escape for me is to look at something and say, hmm, not good for me. Lord, in this moment... I pray that you would give me a holy diversion. Take my mind to another place. Get me closer to Jesus right now in this moment so that I can't even see that because I'm blinded by Jesus. And that's been pretty powerful for me. I share that with you in hopes that maybe that's a prayer that will settle on in your heart. Lord, get me so close to Jesus that I'm blinded to anything but him. I just need, in this moment, I just need a holy diversion. And that works pretty good. Um, Galatians, let's see, let me go to uh, James chapter 1, verse 14. James chapter 1, verse 14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's very specific. 
God didn't say you're lured and enticed by the things that are coming your way. He said you're lured and enticed by your own desires. So let's get real about this. I don't care who you are. I don't care how strong you are. I don't care how long you've been saved. I don't care any of that stuff. You still have a spiritual battlefield right here inside of you. And that battlefield will go on until the day you die. Now, you may be stronger than some people, and you win a lot of battles, but Satan does not give up. So he's going to keep that battle raging inside of you. So for me, it's a matter of remembering that usually my downfall has to do with I'm trying to serve me, not trying to serve somebody else. When I'm trying to make things better for me, when I'm trying to serve my own desires, that's when I'm doing the worst thing I can do. That's when I'm crushing the heart of Jesus, when I'm doing my thing. Because he doesn't want me to do my thing. He wants me to do his thing for somebody else. We're put here to serve. We're put here to worship. We're put here to witness. We're not put here to serve ourselves. There's way too much scripture that tells me that. If we look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. Why do you think God keeps mentioning flesh? Why do you think he keeps mentioning desires? Because he knows who we are. He ought to. He made us. And he knows that we have, the way that we're made, we have the ability to make a choice between our desires and his desires. And he wants us to be there in a spot where we have to make that choice. Because our God does not drag us into anything and force us to do anything. He says, I made you. I love you. This is what I want for you. I want to bless you. But you've got to be willing to do this yourself. How many of you have children that you've said to them, I love you. I want things to be great for you. I want your life to be successful. But you've got to get out and go do something. You know, we hit that spot when we're in our, uh, our teen years uh, and, you know, maybe even into our 20s sometimes where we still kind of just want to be taken care of. But our parents who raised us love us and the, the way that sometimes you have to love somebody is to say, I'm going to love you enough to push you out that door and let you do what you should do, which is become the adult. When I was uh, 18 years old, I graduated high school from Judson High School in Converse, Texas, right outside of San Antonio. And my first job out of high school that summer was working on a construction crew. We were building a set of apartments right outside of San Antonio in Universal City, Texas. And the man who owned the construction company was Mr. Johnny Gallus. And Mr. Johnny was a great guy. He, he looked, y'all remember the show Family Affair? You remember Brian Keith that paid... Uh, um, what was his name? Uncle Bill. Uncle Bill on Family Affair. You young people, you have no idea. Google it. YouTube it. This guy was a—he was a dead ringer for for Uncle Bill, uh, Brian Keith, the actor. So anyway, the job that I got hired for was to work on a cleanup crew. And me and three other boys my age, all we did all day long was walk around that apartment complex and pick up construction trash and take it to a dumpster and put it in the dumpster and the first day on the job I got there early in the morning it's you know San Antonio Texas in the summertime gets a little bit hot highs up in the hundreds plus every day so I wanted to be impressive I wanted to show Mr. Johnny you know what a hard worker I could be and I overdid it and I got you know, about that close to heat stroke that day, and about 3.30 that afternoon, he recognized that I was red and flushed and, and wobbling, and he said, son, you're doing a great job, but you're doing a little too much. This is San Antonio, Texas, boy. It's 103 degrees outside. You've got to pace yourself. So here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go on home and then come back tomorrow, and let's, you know, just let's, let's, let's pace ourselves because I don't need anybody dying on my job site. So I went home and decided that I wasn't going back to that job and so when my dad got home he said how'd your first day go son I said well it's pretty rough dad what do you mean rough 
Now, you've got to understand, my dad was born in 1922, raised during the Depression, one of eight boys, uh, or eight kids, seven boys and one girl. They worked hard. He worked hard his whole life. So I said, it's pretty rough, Dad. He said, what do you mean by pretty rough? And I said, well, it was rough, Dad. Um, you know, I almost, I almost had a heat stroke out there. He's oh, well, you'll be better tomorrow. Just pace yourself. And I said, well, Dad, I ain't going back tomorrow. And he said, you, uh, what? So I'm not going back to that job. He goes, really? Okay. Well, let me give you a choice. Tomorrow morning, I want you to get up, put on a suit and tie. We're going to do one of two things. Either we're going to go to downtown San Antonio, and I'm going to drop you off, and you can walk the streets of downtown San Antonio going in every business you can find asking for a job until you get one. Or, this might be easier, I'll take you to the recruiting station of your choice. Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, or Coast Guard, son. I'm proud of the Coast Guard. That's who I served with. I'll take you to any of those, and you can just go ahead and join up tomorrow. Well, in high school, I was pretty small. I think I didn't weigh 130 pounds until I was 22 years old. So I got picked on a lot in high school, and the thought of going into the military just petrified me. So he left me with that choice to think about. And... uh, About 10 minutes later, I picked up the phone and I called the construction office. And thank God Mr. Johnny answered the phone. And I said, Mr. Johnny, I'd already called the man and told him I wasn't coming back. I said, could I possibly have that job back? And he chuckled and he said, you talked to your daddy, didn't you? (laughs) Yes, sir. He said, you come on back tomorrow. (sighs) Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) We, We are God's children. And sometimes he treats us that way. Let me give you a choice. I hope you make a good one, but this choice may not be an easy one. When we're faced with temptation, the choice may not be an easy one. Let's take a look at another crossroad. The other crossroad, another crossroad that we face is when someone hurts us. You know, life on this earth would be so much easier if we didn't have to deal with some other people who live here. Amen? I mean, sometimes let's just be real. It's just difficult sometimes. Now, I don't want anybody looking at anybody else right now, okay? Don't be pointing fingers at each other. You know, yeah, it's you. You're the one. <laughs> but life on this earth would be a little bit easier sometimes if, we, if there were certain people that we didn't have to deal with. But we do have to deal with them. And maybe God put some of those difficult people in our path for a reason. Maybe to teach us a few things. Maybe to show us ourselves through somebody else. Oh, that hurt. Maybe so. At some point, somebody's going to hurt you, okay? Let's do a poll. Anybody ever been hurt by somebody else? Yes, come on. Every hand in here should go up. At some point, somebody has hurt you. And guess what? At some point, somebody else is going to hurt you. It's going to happen. Now, at the time when somebody hurts you, there's a, 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 a mental, physiological thing that takes place. You see or hear something related to someone else. And what you see or hear related to that person hurts you. And as a result, it triggers an emotion inside of you. The emotion may be anger. It may be feeling betrayal. It might be feeling disrespected. But it's an emotion that triggers because of what you saw or heard from somebody else. So, bam, it triggered an emotion. And then that emotion becomes the catalyst for an action that you take. And it all happens just like that. Saw something, heard something, triggered an emotion. The, the angry emotion made me act out in such a way. So when that happens, we're living our life based on the emotion that we felt. We're not really experiencing the truth of maybe what's been said or done, but we're, we're living out that emotion and we're letting that be the driver. And I don't know about y'all, but I've come to realize that when I make decisions about how I'm going to react to something based on the emotion that's raging inside of me, it's usually a pretty pathetic reaction. Usually the worst reaction I can offer. So, God gave us some very specific instructions about how we're supposed to deal with situations and how we're supposed to treat other people even when there's somebody who wronged us, even when there's somebody who hurt us. God wasn't, he didn't say, all right, here's how I want you to treat people. I want you to love one another, you know, 
love God, love people, except for the people who hurt you. That's not in there anywhere. There's no exceptions to the rule. It's love God, love people. He didn't say if somebody hurts your little feelings that you can go ahead and say what you want to and you can do things to hurt them back and all that stuff. It's okay because, well, somebody's going to go, well, what about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Well, what about the new covenant? I think we're going to have to be careful when we start going back to the Old Testament and pulling up those little things that we want to selectively pull out and go, yeah, but God said, yeah, but God said when Jesus got here, things changed. Amen? So you better be careful about that that pee-picking in the wrong patch. So the specific instructions that God gave us sound like this. If, if we go to chapter 6 of Luke, in verse 27 and 28, he says, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Oh, do I have to do all that? I mean, that's not going to be any fun. (laughs) Jesus said, I didn't ask what was fun. I'm just trying to tell you. This is how you treat people. And then further in that chapter, it says, it's quite easy to love those who love you. Even a sinner can do that. And it says, it's easy to do good for those who do good for you. Even a, what? Sinner can do that. He said, I need you to be the same person all the time, treating people the same way. Now, are you still going to get your feelings hurt at some point? Well, of course you are. By the way, and this is especially for men, it's, this is a stump sub- subject for me. <laughs> My brother Greg has heard me say this so many times, he's probably sick of it. Guess what? Men and women have the same emotions inside their bodies. God gave us all the same emotions There's a set of them. It's like a deck of playing cards. And he didn't give women one deck and men another deck. We all have the same deck. The problem is that women are very good about using the good emotions and showing them outwardly. The love, the charity, the, you know, all the good emotions. They're really good at that. Men, on the other hand, the emotions that we like to let out of the box, unfortunately, a lot of times are the negative emotions. We're quick to show anger. We're quick to show disrespect to people because we feel like they disrespected us. We're we're quick, you know, quick to show the negative emotions. So, men, embrace the idea that you've got some nice emotions inside of you and let people see them because they're real, and God gave them to you, and it's okay to show them. So don't hide them. If I say that I truly desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit and that I truly want to walk with Jesus, then when someone hurts me, I need to act like it. If I say I truly want to be Spirit-filled and walk with Jesus, when I run up on a situation where somebody hurts my feelings, then I need to act like it. Let's look at one more. When I'm faced with the opportunity to witness to others about Jesus, I need to act like it. What do opportunities to, to witness for Jesus look like? Well, they take all kind of different forms. Let's say maybe just somebody needs some help. And when I say help, I'm talking about in a physical sense. A neighbor is in need of someone to help him or her with something around the house that they can't take care of on their own. Is that an opportunity to witness for Jesus? Yeah, it's a great opportunity. Okay. Uh, someone needs a wheelchair ramp built. Men go do that. Are they witnessing for Jesus? Yes, they are. It's a great opportunity. What's another opportunity? What if somebody asks you some questions about your faith? Is that an opportunity to witness for Jesus? That's the golden one. That's the one we all wish would happen. I just, Lord, I just wish somebody would come up to me and say, you know, you just seem different. Tell me about this Jesus that you love. <laughs> that would make it so easy. But it's a great opportunity to witness for Jesus. When someone 
shares with you that they're struggling with something or they're having some difficulty in their life. Is that a good opportunity to witness for Jesus? Yeah, it's a golden opportunity to witness for Jesus. Here's a good one. When you recognize that other people are watching you to see how you're going to react to something, is that a good opportunity to be a witness for Jesus? If you're smart enough to recognize that there's something going on in your life and that you're at a crossroads to make a decision about how you're going to respond to something, and you're smart enough to realize that other people are watching you to see how you're going to react to that situation, then you're smart enough to make the right decision and react to it in such a way that would make Jesus say, Oh, I'm so proud of you. I love the way you handled that. Good job. Good job. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, All right, guess we'll finish out on this one. So I'm in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Luke said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, why did Jesus talk about those specific places? Because that's where they were at the time, right? So what does he mean by the ends of the earth? Well, I think he means till you die. Till you're done, you're going to be my witness. That's my intention for you, is to be my witness. And then in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, it says, and, to, and, and he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. We, we know that God created us for some very specific reasons. And one of those very specific reasons is so that we could witness for him. So when we're faced with the opportunity to witness for him, what should we do? Act like it. If we say we want to be spirit-filled and we say we want to walk with Jesus and we're faced with an opportunity to witness to other people, then we should act like it. And then the last one is when you have a chance to be the hands and feet of Jesus. I wonder how many opportunities to be the hands and feet of Jesus that we overlook because we just don't see it. Do you feel like that? Like, maybe I'm just not seeing all these great opportunities because I'm not that alert. I don't see them. One of my favorite sayings is that saying that goes, you may be the only Bible that somebody ever reads. Well, there's truth in that saying. There's another one that's similar to that that I love, and it says, your actions speak far louder than your words. Your actions speak far louder than your words. The things you say are far more impactful to other people than the things that you... I'm sorry, the things that you do are far more impactful to other people than the things that you say. We got to be aware of that. We need to keep that in mind. So, giving of our time in an unselfish way is one of the greatest things that we can possibly do because it's God-ordained. He wants us to give of our time to other people unselfishly. And by the way, I don't know if you've recognized this, but I certainly have. I don't care how bad of a day I may be having. If I do something good for somebody else just because my heart says do this and there's no expectation of any return for it and it's just unselfishly serving, all of a sudden my bad day went away. Has anybody noticed that? You know, you can't have a bad day and be doing good things. You you can't. You can't be doing good things for other people and have a bad day because there's something inside of you that just changes. And the joy that you experience overwhelms any potential for a bad day. So with that, you know, knowing that little principle, shouldn't we just like be looking for opportunities to do something good for somebody just to ward off the bad days? 
sort of like the, the apple a day principle. Well, maybe it's a good deed a day principle. Maybe that's what I need to adopt is a good, day, good deed every day principle. If you're focused on walking with Jesus in a spiritful way, you will want to do good things for other people. Isn't that how it works? I mean, when we get filled with the Spirit, that Spirit is going to always be going, what can I do for somebody else? What can I? And there, how many of you know somebody? I know somebody very well that's this way. How many of you know somebody that you look at and go, you know, that person is just always looking for something to do, you know, something for good to do for somebody else. That person is just always looking for ways to, to minister to other people. I wish I had more of that in me. And that's something I pray for. Lord, put more of that in me. You know, and then somebody goes, you better be careful what you pray for. Well, maybe not. Maybe I just need to, to just be willing. I had a guy tell me one time, he said uh, uh, that he was having a conversation with a friend, and the friend really wanted to get deeper into his Christianity, but he was hesitant because he was afraid that if he did, that, that all of a sudden God would put all these things in his life that would start consuming his time, and he was already stretched thin to begin with. You know, he felt like he was overwhelmed to begin with. And this friend that I was talking to who was sort of counseling with this guy said something that stuck with me ever since, and this was 20-something years ago. He said, yeah, but you know, I kind of look at my relationship with, with Christ like this. Basically, he just wants me to sign the contract and walk away so that he can fill in the details when they come up. Wow. <laughs> How many of you would sign like a mortgage contract without the details filled in? N- nobody would do that. But we're not talking about dealing with a banker, are we? We're talking about dealing with the Savior. And if that's what God wants, if that's what is, is part of the deal, then I guess I just need to be willing to sign the contract and let Jesus fill in the details when the time comes. I mean, I, that, to me, that was a pretty powerful way to, to put that. So let's look at a couple of scriptures right quick. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition nor vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each to the interest of others. And then Galatians 5.13 says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Those are two very powerful verses that say, it ain't about you. It's about other people. It's not about you. I have to remind myself of that because there's a very selfish streak in me. I stand before you and tell you that everything I've said to you today has been said in a very self-convicting way. Every bit of this. I mean, I have stomped on my own toes this week preparing for this like you would not believe. But it's okay, because as I said a few weeks ago when Brother Jeff asked me to say, what am I thankful for? I'll remind you, I said I'm thankful for conviction, because when I feel convicted, it's a stark reminder to me that God still loves me, because if he didn't love me, he wouldn't bother to convict me. But when he does convict me, it's a strong message saying, you're not perfect, but I love you. I don't expect you to be perfect. I just expect you to do the very best you can to obey me and love me and love others. And that conviction is something I don't ever want to go away. Because that's the stuff that feels the best. So if I say that I truly desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit and that I want to walk with Jesus, then when I'm faced with the opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus, I need to act like it. That was lukewarm, but it's okay. I know you heard me. A few weeks ago, on uh, this was on the 14th of November, um, Brother Jeff was preaching his Thanksgiving or Giving Thanks sermon series, and each week he was asking one of the active deacons to come up and do an opening prayer, but to also tell the congregation a little bit about what they were thankful for. And on the 14th of November, Brother Bradley Parker came up here, and he said something that burned in my brain. It was so good. He said, and I quote him, 
I can't always keep it together, and I can't always make the right choices. But God is always faithful, and he is there for me every day. (laughs) Yes, he is. Man, that was such a good thing to say because what Bradley said was, hey, I'm not the guy that's got it all together. I'm not perfect, and I know that. And I can't always make the right choices, and I can't always do the right things. But God is always there for me, and he's always doing the right things for me. And that just felt so good to hear. That's, that's the kind of vulnerability that I love because when somebody is vulnerable enough to tell you that they're not perfect, then I believe they are the most genuine person I'm listening to at the moment. And that's how that felt to me. So, in closing, if God is always faithful to be there for us every day, then we should honor that faithfulness with action. And if we claim to desire to be a spirit-filled person who wants to walk with Jesus, then in all circumstances, we need to act like it. We just need to act like it. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know how you're feeling today about things in your life. But I do know this. There are plenty of opportunities for you to be self-reflective and look at yourself like I look at myself and say, Lord, where's the spot in my life that I need to pay attention to? And am I acting like it? Am I doing what you want me to do? I hope so. But if I'm not, Lord, I want you to show that to me. And in this moment, there's somebody, maybe more than one person in here that's like I was saying, you know, man, I ain't been acting like it. And for that same person, somebody's on the other side of their brain saying, yeah, but you, you, just, you just need to think about this a bit, you know. Don't, don't fess up yet. And that's just the wrong decision to make. Because if you walk out of here, not, if you walk out of here hearing a message, but not doing anything about it, and there's a spirit inside of you saying, yeah, you got to do something about this, then you just let Satan win another one. 